Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Fire You Can't Put Out, episode number 321. My name is Melvin, and I want to thank you so much for being here. So let's start with Inside the Trump Campaign. Uh, first off, I just want to let you know about the communications that I'm seeing between the two campaigns. I am signed up with both campaigns right now because that's what somebody does when they want to uh, aggregate as much information as they can. So the Donald Trump campaign is still sending me between texts and emails from several different email accounts and several different numbers, um, somewhere between 20 and 30 different messages a day. Uh, just by contrast, I am receiving one maybe two from the Biden campaign, and that's if they send anything out at all, and then maybe one from the DNC periodically. I'd like to think that they don't want to be much of a nuisance, but I think what we're really seeing is uh, too often the Biden campaign doesn't look like they really care about whether they win, um, and the Trump campaign is treating this like it's the last election that will take place in America ever and Trump has to be the victor and I know that sounds like hyperbole like what am I doing why would I talk like that Trump's treating it like that because if Trump gets a second term that's exactly what it's going to be the last election ever I remember somebody saying back in 2016 um, you know that either uh, Trump would lose the election or he would be the last president ever. And I went, ha, 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 and I sort of laughed it off. But the way the Trump campaign is acting now, the language that they're using uh, in their, their literature, their emails, their texts, I go, they really, really believe that if they win this election, that they will never, ever have to leave office. And then Trump recently made a statement saying, hey, um, the Democrats... Uh, spied on my campaign and you know I didn't do anything wrong because I'm Donald Trump and I never ever do anything wrong and he goes I deserve a third term because they spied on my campaign largely ruining one of my terms and when asked if he was joking he said what he says with some regularity when it comes to this subject he says I never joke alright then Since I am signed up with the Trump campaign, um, they've sent out some fairly interesting emails as of late. So one of them was titled Trump Talk. Ah, Trump Talk. Okay, y'all are just going to sit around and circle jerk about Donald Trump. Fine, I don't have to be a part of that. Turns out it's not that at all. I was mistaken. That's what I get for jumping to conclusions when I think about a bunch of repressed white males who are who are dearly in love with this unhinged maniac, I instantly think a bunch of old white racist dudes sitting around and jerking it to the president's thoughts. Okay, never, what what Trump talk was, was it was they wanted you to be on, to be in on a, on a sort of a, a seminar, like a, an online seminar. And they want to give you the talking points and they want to teach you, you know, how to rebuff um, the things that Trump, uh, the people might say, you know, when you begin talking about Trump, what they want you to do is they want you to make calls for the campaign and they're calling it Trump talk. And they're going to give you all of the talking points and they're going to give you the counter talking points to all of the inevitable stuff 
that people are going to say about Donald Trump. Like, he's a racist, and he's a misogynist, and something is effing wrong with him. And why does he have to act like such a child? They're going to give you talking points to deal with all of that. And so they asked if I wanted to sign up for the seminar to learn how to talk back to people that don't like Trump and to and, and then and then eventually to do it in an official capacity. Mm-mm. How long ago? I'd love to hear even record the phone call. Play it back here on the show. Give y'all a little inside baseball. I don't know that anyone would even listen to that. I, I appear to go too far when it comes to paying attention uh, to these campaigns and really to the world at large. But then they had another one. So I decided not to sign up for Trump Talk. They said, you're going to sign up for Trump Talk? I said, no, not going to sign up for Trump Talk. You know, If I want Trump Talk, I'll go to Fox News. They talk about him all the time. They love him. But then they had another one where they said, we want people to help people vote. Help people vote. I've been on this planet long enough and around the United States Republican Party long enough that when they say one thing, they mean another thing. So they want people to be helpers at the polls to help people vote. And I wondered what that was. And what it is, is they say, you know, there's going to be, you know, some consternation this this election, you know, the Democrats are trying to steal everything. The illegals are trying to steal everything, like all the same racist tropes that they use all the time. And they said, hey, would you sign up to be a volunteer on election day to help people vote? As I delved more into this, I realized exactly what this was. This is commonly what's referred to as, or what used to be referred to as, um, during Reconstruction, during the Civil Rights Movement, um, as poll watchers. And what these people do is anybody that comes up, and it's always conservatives that do this, you know. You can say Democrat, Republican. Those titles really mean nothing because the parties tend to shift back and forth. I forget which party it was at that time that was super racist, whether it was the Democrats or the Republicans. They switch place all the time. But conservatives and progressives are always in the same place. Uh, conservatives are always to the right and progressives are always to the left. So that's why I use those terms instead of Democrat and Republican because people that use those, especially when it comes to the history of the parties, is intentionally trying to confuse you. So for the sake for the sake of, of being clear here, I'm going to use conservative and progressive. So the conservatives at that time did not want progressive people to be able to vote. And so they would have people go to the polls. And Judge Rehnquist did this. Supreme Court Judge uh, Rehnquist, this was how he cut his teeth in the Republican Party. And he was a he was a hulking man, a, a tall, hulking man, very intimidating. And he would stand outside the polls on election day and he would say, hey, I don't think you have the right to legally vote in this country. Let me see your ID. Let me see your papers. And he would just berate these people and yell at them until eventually they just turned away and they wouldn't vote because who is this man who's threatening me? And the way he would know that they they weren't going to vote for whoever the conservative was in that race was they would be generally a minority, somebody with brown skin, maybe somebody female, maybe somebody poor. And when they approached the polls, he would bark, let me see your papers. And this, it sounds like, 
This is what the Trump campaign wants people to sign up to do, to become a Trump poll watcher. And no, that's not to actually watch the polls. And in the whole opposite world for conservatives, it's not to help people vote either. It's that when you see somebody brown approaching, when you see somebody Asian approaching, or maybe when you see something, someone Latin or a woman, especially a woman of color, instantly challenging their right to vote at the polls. I do like the fact that the television, the television reporting, is no longer talking about this campaign like Biden has it in the bag. The United States media, I don't think it's biased. I know conservatives claim it's biased, but they claim everything's biased because they're a bunch of effing crybabies. If people don't tell them what they want to hear, they turn into a bunch of effing crybabies. It's not biased, but it is meant for entertainment first and information second. We call it infotainment, but it should probably be tainment info because putting the info first suggests that there's a lot of viable information there, which there generally isn't. And they were talking about the election for, for a long time. It seemed like a period of about a month and a half there, maybe two months there, where they go, well, Biden has it in the bag. And I think perhaps with the way the Trump campaign has been talking as of late, how they, you know, Trump's never leaving office and, you know, they want these poll watchers and Trump's just being as racist as he can every single day. And the Republican National Convention, which, by the way, I watched both the DNC and the RNC all four days. The Republican National Convention wasn't about conservatism. It wasn't about conservative ideas. It wasn't about policy. It was 100 percent about why they love Trump. And with that, I think everyone kind of looked around and said, this election, this upcoming election is not about a competition of ideas. It's about Joe Biden's ideas of perhaps a return to normalcy. I suppose we'll see. Boy, I'd love to see. Versus how much the Republican Party loves Trump how Trump is infallible, and how Trump can do no wrong. And I think that the media has kind of had an, an OS moment. Like, oh no, you know, they helped build this monster. Because this monster is very entertaining. And that's what draws eyeballs to the screen, and then they're able to sell ads, and then that's what they do. They need to sell ads. Cable news needs to sell ads. They don't need to give you good information. They need to sell ads. And damn near everybody that you're looking at on cable news, uh, right down to who I'm, you know, I'm, I hate to say, I, I love Rachel Maddow. <laughs> Rachel Maddow's like a like a member of the family. Um, we generally have dinner around six o'clock in the evening. Uh, we, you know, Pacific Standard Time, and uh, that's the time Rachel comes on live. Six o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Now, my family doesn't always let me watch Rachel. She's the only show that I, I just never miss. I don't watch many of the others, and if I do, it's just little here, little there. But I never miss Rachel. And I used to listen to her on podcast, but I've got YouTube TV now, so I watch all the time. 
And so, you know, we'll sit down to dinner about six o'clock and I'll put Rachel on the telly. And it's like, it's all six of us, right? It's, it's, it's me, my wife, my three daughters and Rachel. Ah, it's a house full of, house full of ladies, uh, brilliant, beautiful ladies. <laughs> and, uh, but I know that the overwhelming odds are that Rachel too is a millionaire. Most of these people you're watching on cable news, millionaires. And overwhelmingly, the class that they are advocating for is not you and I. It's the millionaires. Zip. Money is power. And this is why we used to break up major corporations. Because if a corporation gets too large, it threatens democracy. There's a headline over at the New York Times. And it's titled, Zuckerberg is the most powerful unelected man in America. And you don't even have to go into the article. It's all right there. He is. Through money, through getting the eyeballs, through disseminating the information, he's the most powerful unelected man in America. And he did that with money. And then he got a gigantic tax break from Donald Trump and from George W. Bush, you know, and, and whoever, whatever Republican comes next. Like, he, he, he's got all this money and the Republicans give him a tax break and he gets even more money. So I think that the media figures have realized sort of the air in their ways of talking about this election like it's a foregone conclusion. Plus, it's also not very good for ratings. So I'm hoping that, that what they're doing is that they're having this moment where they're going, oh God, uh, we got this guy elected the first time. We might get him elected the second time. Um, just while we're talking about Facebook for a second, Facebook has decided that their platform will not run any political ads one week before the election so as not to muddy the election at all. And they say, and it's supposed, and maybe it's true, I can't say, um, that they are noticing all of the uh, sleeping accounts from 2016, all of the Russian bot accounts and, and all that that were that helped sow discord in the election in 2016. They said all those profiles just stayed up there inactive over the last number of years. But now that it's 2020, um, all those pages are active again. And, and Russia is setting up fake left-wing news sites to try to turn people away from Joe Biden create a lot of uh, create a lot of uh, smoke around around Joe Biden's condition and, and his ability to lead and all this so the Russians are back at it again and that's not that's not speculation we know that we know that from the intelligence community there was something that came out through the intelligence community just recently where it said that the Russians uh, are busting ass all, all over again to, tr to try to make sure that Biden doesn't become president and to try to make sure that Trump stays president. Like they're doing everything again. And there was a, a Republican Senate report, Republican, that came out about a month or so ago that said, yep, the Russians helped Trump and Donald, and Donald Trump in 2016, and they're helping him again in 2020. And then Trump stepped out on stage and said, I am exonerated. They're not helping me. They were never helping me. Fa -la 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 -la. And this is terrible. This was also uh, a development from the last couple of weeks, but, um, so with the Russian uh, accounts and the Russian bots and all that, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, has begun retweeting Russian propaganda on Twitter. I don't know if he realizes that it's, it's Russian propaganda, 
Um, but that's how pervasive this stuff is online. And I think that the other realization that we as Americans and maybe even the American media have come to is, is the, the poison, the American poison that is being distributed and is being consumed around the world. Germany is once again full of Nazis. And if we're being honest, they probably never ever 100% got rid of them. I was talking with one of my daughters the other day and she said, so what, do we have to wait for all these people to die off before we don't got to deal with Nazi stuff anymore? And I said, you're, gonna, you're, you're not going to live three or 400 years. And even if you do, there's no saying it'll be gone by then. Uh, African Americans have been trampled underfoot by um, American whites for 400 years. The 1619 Project, when we know that they brought black people here for the purposes of making them slaves, it's 400 years later. And white people are still murdering black people. And if they're, if they're police, they're not being held to account for it. So I said, there's no, it's not, no. But what we do have to do is we do have to work to try to change their minds. So the headline over at the New York Times, uh, and this comes from Anna Sauerbrey. The, the headline reads, uh, Meet Germany's Bizarre anti-lockdown protesters. So I read that and I go, oh, just a bunch of people that don't believe in the virus, huh? So it goes like this, quoting, they're out on the streets again. On Saturday, around 38,000 people marched in Berlin, calling for an end to pandemic restrictions. It was a bizarre mix of people, families, senior citizens, joined by far right-wing extremists and sporting swastika tattoos. Yeah, swastika tattoos. There it is. Just like in America. Protesters brandished signs reading, Take off the slave masks. That's another American thing. While others held up peace flags, many shouted, We are the people, and others called on President Trump and Vladimir Putin of Russia to liberate Germany. Hold up. Putin. Trump. A couple of Nazis. The Germans are asking. And this isn't the majority of the country, but it's too damn many. You remember about 80 years ago, we went into Germany and we defeated the Nazis? Well, they're back now. And they're not just in America. They're back even in Germany. Quoting again, In a scene bound to be inscribed in the country's history, a group carrying the Reichsflag, the black, white, and red flag of the German Empire that served as the basis for that used by the Nazi regime, broke through a police barrier and attempted to enter the, enter the Reichstag. That's their parliament building. It was a terrifying escalation in a sequence of protest against the country's response to the pandemic, beginning in April in the southwestern city of Stuttgart. They have since spread across the country with varying success, sometimes bringing 250 people out, sometimes 5,000. At the start of the month, they crossed the threshold. Over 30,000 protesters gathered in Berlin on August 1st. These demonstrations are something of a mystery. One of the strangest things about them is there's hardly anything to protest. Yeah, uh, most restrictions, never as strict as some of the ones in other European countries, have been lifted. So who are the protesters? What brings them to the streets? And are they here to stay? A central figure is Michael Balweg, 
a Stuttgart-based entrepreneur who runs a software for Mr. Balwig, who did not respond to an interview request for the New York Times, is the founder of uh, Quardenken 7-Eleven. Quardenken means lateral thinking, and 7-Eleven is Stuttgart's area code, the organization that has registered most of the demonstrations, including this past Saturday's. While people can gather and protest without asking the authorities' permission in Germany, all protests in open public spaces must be registered with the police in advance. I am here today, Mr. Balweg said in his opening address to the Berlin protest on August 1st, because I dislike the world that the federal government presents to me, a world he depicted as one of control restrictions and fear, though he does not outright, at least not now, uh, question the existence of the virus. He claims that it is less dangerous than the government says, and there are uh, and, and the restrictions are excessive. And he says there is no pandemic. And here is where it really begins to turn towards America. America, you're going to have to hang your head in shame. He seems to believe in conspiracy theories. Oh yeah, yeah. During Mr. Balwig's opening speech, he appeared to reference the American group QAnon, reciting a phrase frequently used in social media posts linked to the group: "Where we go, one we go all." He often referred to Mr. Trump, who many hoped would save them all. Uh, we're now disappointed to see him. They're disappointed to see that Trump is now wearing a mask. Uh, Mr. Balwig is the tip of an iceberg. At the protest. In Stuttgart on May 9th, Ken Jebsen, a former public radio host, was fired for anti-Semitic remarks and became a prominent YouTuber. Claimed that the virus was a Trojan horse designed to make the state and the lobbyists and companies and give them uh, to make them even more powerful and citizens even more powerless. And it goes on like that. Since it was Americans that helped get the Nazis out of Germany, I suppose it would only stand to reason that it is the Americans that have helped to bring the Nazis back to Germany. And the last thing that I want to go over today, and I hope everybody likes the new format. I know that I kind of bounce from one thing to the next without a lot of palate cleansers in between, but um, trying to make the show tighter and more focused, um, consume less of your time, and really give you more things to think about. I also know that most commutes are generally right around a half an hour, so I kind of want to. I want to make this so you can listen to on your commute. <laughs> if you got a commute in both directions, uh, say you got a half an hour to work and a half an hour home, well then you're just listening to Melvin for an hour a day. Oh my goodness! I know for some folks that's okay, but for other folks, I understand why you don't want to hear Melvin for an hour a day. Sometimes even Melvin don't want to hear Melvin for an hour a day. So uh, the last thing I'm going to cover, though, is the vaccine. So I mentioned all these things. So Donald Trump has has been pushing the CDC to say the things that he wants to say. He knows that one of the things that's really hindering his reelection is his dumpy ass response to the pandemic. Almost 200,000 people dead. We're easily going to have 250,000 people dead by Election Day. Um, over 10% unemployment. Um, America is not respected in the world anymore. Everybody looks down on us. Everybody feels sorry for us. They don't understand how America went from this shiny beacon um, to just the, the dumbest, dumbest country in the world. I mean, it's just... With that, he goes, well, his chances of re-election aren't that strong. 
but if he could have a vaccine. So he's pushing the CDC to say that, yes, there will be a vaccine ready by, are you ready? Are you listening? By late October or early November. Oh my goodness. Just in time for the election. So for those of you that are voting in early states, have early voting, you can now vote for him because he's got people promising without any evidence that they're going to have a vaccine by the election. So remember that when you go to the polls. And that's really all he's going to try to get out of it. Their, their likelihood is, is not good. Not good at all. But it's not stopping him from pushing it. And this is, not the, this is not the first time that this has happened in history. So I refer to you uh, to an opinion article, the New York Times, by Rick Perlstein. Rick Perlstein's a brilliant author, by the way. He's written three books about the rise of the Republican Party. I've read one of them. Um, the books are quite heavy, quite thick, <laughs> but they're worth every minute. He's, he's an absolutely brilliant writer that doesn't waste your time for even one second in the way he writes. So the, the headline, uh, Gerald Ford rushed out a vaccine also, and it was a fiasco. Um, this is one of those things I never learned about in school. Quoting here, uh, and he's talking about how Donald Trump is promising this vaccine before election day. He says, history offers Mr. Trump a cautionary tale. In February 1976, hundreds of soldiers at Fort Dix, New Jersey, contracted a new strain of the H1N1 virus that seemed to be a descendant of the one responsible for the 1918 flu pandemic, which killed at least 50 million people worldwide and possibly as many as 100 million. Back in those days, the World Health Organization twice a year convened a panel of experts to determine which strains of influenza should be included in this year's flu, sh flu shots, then provided the necessary seed virus to manufacturers. President Gerald Ford, however, decided to leapfrog the protocol in the face of the news out of Fort Dix. It was, after all, an election year. And Mr. Ford, who had risen out of the presidency upon Richard Nixon's resignation 19 months earlier, was seeking his first full term. On March 22nd, Mr. Ford met with senior administration officials who recommended a mass vaccination program. A memo marked the president has seen uh, warned of the ingredients for a pandemic, though also noted that an argument can be made for taking no extraordinary action. But Mr. Ford was advised that Congress would likely act anyway, which meant that not he uh, would get the credit for a potentially heroic decision and that the government can tolerate unnecessary health expenditures better than any better than unnecessary death and illness. He was also reminded of a significant political consideration. Congress, the media, and the American people will, of course, expect some action. Two days later, he met with a so-called blue-ribbon panel of experts and then appeared before television cameras, telling reporters that we cannot afford to take a chance with the health of our nation. He announced that he was requesting an immediate $135 million congressional appropriation for the production of two, uh, for, for the prediction, produ production, excuse me, of a sufficient vaccine to inoculate every man, woman, and child in the United States. What happened at Fort Dix, he was afraid, was going to infect the entire country and he could not stand by. He could not wait. And he decided to jump all of the usual protocols that we have surrounding this kind of thing. He went on to say that he was directing what was then known as the Department of Health, Education and Welfare to develop plans that would make this vaccine available to all Americans in the fall. An unnamed official at the World Health Organization, which 
had not been consulted, expressed his organization's, organization's surprise in a widely quoted comment and noted that no other countries have plans for mass inoculations against what, what was popularly known as the swine flu. U.S. officials immediately pressured the World Health Organization to endorse Mr. Ford's decision, and as the historian George Denner noted, the pressure worked. By the next day, WHO officials who were quoted in the news media stating WHO endorses President Ford's plan for a massive inoculation against the flu virus. That fall, celebrities lined up to get jabbed with the vaccine before the cameras to set an example, including the president sleeve rolled up in the Oval Office. On Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase did his famous Ford impression, sporting a syringe in his arm uh, during a debate against Dan Aykroyd's Jimmy Carter. As it turned out, the H1N1 strain never made it out of Fort Dix, where only one Army recruit died. And it also turned out that the swine flu was not nearly as virulent as the 1918 influenza. But fast-tracking the vaccine for broad distribution uh, among the public carried risks. Of the 45 million people vaccinated against the swine flu, an estimated 450 people developed the paralyzing syndrome uh, Julian Barr, and of those, more than 30 of them died. The National Academy of Medicine subsequently concluded that people who received the, the 1976 swine flu vaccine had, of course, an increased risk for developing Julian Barr, this debilitating disease. So the fact that the president is pushing for political reasons, not scientific reasons, I just want to say, don't don't, 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 don't listen to this man. Do not fall for this. By pushing out a vaccine before it's time, before it's ready, is going to do nothing. And sometimes it'll do worse than nothing. It'll get people sick and it will kill them. Do not fall for this. And unfortunately, we are no longer a part of the World Health Organization anymore because Donald Trump doesn't care about the health of the American people. And over at the CDC, they've been completely politicized. Unfortunately, you have been warned. It's going to be really, tr- really tough to trust the CDC while Donald Trump is president. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here on the Fire You Can't Put Out. Our official home is tfycpo.podbean.com. Like us on Facebook at the same. You can also email us at tfycpo at gmail.com. We work hard to not only inform and entertain, but also keep an open dialogue with our growing listener base. So feel free to reach out to us. And as always, thank you for listening. We are the Fire You Can't Put Out, and we will prevail. Rejecting austerity in favor of prosperity. Special thanks to Kevin for producing, and thank you for listening. My name is Melvin. I am now signing off. And <laughs> now that I have woke you up, good morning.